Last week we looked at the incredible doctrine of adoption that Christians, those who have the spirit of Christ, as Paul says in this chapter, are children of God, adopted into the family of God. We saw that being a child of God isn't merely some nice sort of religious language, you know, oh, we're all children of God. It is perhaps the greatest reality of, of what it means to be a Christian, the greatest aspect of what Christ has accomplished for those of us who belong to him, that we are actually children of God. We're not sons of God in a vague way as his creatures, but adoption means that we have, well, first of all, an intimate relationship that God initiated with us as individuals, and he approaches us as a deeply caring and loving father, a father who happens to have infinite power and glory. And secondly, that we are heirs of all that is due to sons. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And what that means, the end of verse 17 tells us, is glory that we may be glorified with him, an actual sharing in the glory of God. We will be with him, enjoying him, delighting in him, and doing the things that please him, and that consequently brings him even more glory. We will be of his household, not as servants, but as sons and daughters of the living God. Paul chose that word glory very carefully because it carries with it a lot of ideas. Um, honor, position, radiance, splendor, excellence, the beauty of perfection, all of those qualities which describe the Lord Jesus. And as Christ is crowned with glory as God the Son, as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Lord of all men, this verse says, verse 17, that we will be glorified with him in that sharing his glory. Now, we don't deserve that at all. Not one bit of that glory is deserved by us. But God is such a great redeemer and such a loving father that he gladly shares it with us out of his own bounteous love. The greatness of his love grants us that, his grace. But as we touched on last week, there are two, ele two elements at the end of verse 17 that appear striking because they're together and they seem so divergent. Glory, Paul says, comes through the path of sorrows. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. By his own choice to save us from sin and death, Christ chose the path of suffering, the cross, to win his glory. And we must be aware that suffering is a reality that we will face as well. What follows here, beginning with verse 18, is a paragraph that explains the relationship between suffering and glory as we find it. So pay attention, because this is one of the most important explanatory sections in the whole Bible that will most certainly intersect your life many times as you live the rest of your life out. It's a framework for understanding life, and this framework is something that you can bring to every sorrow that you will encounter in your life. 
The truth is, this world is full of suffering and sorrows and pain and anguish of soul. And we're going to learn why and we're going to understand it. Now, many Christians want to avoid this whole subject of suffering, fearful that somehow suffering on earth makes God look bad. The Bible doesn't have that frame of mind at all. It doesn't look at it that way at all. He's not embarrassed to talk about suffering on the earth, God. He's not defensive about it. Nor should we be. We can learn from him. The first thing Paul asks us to consider when we think about suffering and glory is a simple comparison. Compare them. This is something people most often fail to do, even people of faith. But faith or, or trust in what God says is very important in thinking about suffering. Verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a very important element here, and it's time. Time. Suffering exists in the present time, but for the believer, suffering will not exist ever when we reach glory. And the comparison is simply to think in these terms. How long are we going to be here, and how long are we going to be there? Heaven knows no sorrows. In fact, here's a specific promise from Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. That's a great promise. That's what lies in store for the children of God, those adopted into God's family. How long will that last? Forever. Forever. Endless joy and delight in the presence of an infinitely creative and loving and powerful Father. Suffering even for a hundred years on earth absolutely pales in comparison with eternal joy. Indeed, what we learn in suffering, trust and patience and endurance and the freedom from the need for perfection, really in this life, compassion, we find that that adds to our character and makes our own future glory all the more substantial. In fact, Paul speaks of this theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to read, he uses a wonderful phrase, 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. That's the work of the Spirit. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Did you catch that phrase? An eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What great word. 
the weight of glory. It's substantial. It's lasting. It's real. It's permanent. Suffering in this world, though it may be extremely difficult and trying, by comparison, he calls it a light affliction. Because it's not an even balance. Gross suffering here, great joy there. The, suffer, the suffering won't even begin to compare to the level of joy and delight and pleasure in God's company. It, it, it's not an even balance. Suffering is small. Even excruciating suffering is small compared to the glories of heaven and the presence of God. Mainly because this is so short-lived. It will end. In lieu of uh, Veterans Day, in honor of it on PBS tonight, there's a, a program called War Letters, and it's... Um, just a show on TV that sort of reads or quotes letters from soldiers down through the years in various wars home and the kind of things that they dealt with and they shared with those at home. And I was reading an article about the program and it said that in a lot of the letters, God and faith come up often. And it quoted one World War I soldier's letter home to his pastor because he was struggling in the midst of so much carnage and World War I was an exceptionally bloody war to find God's love for him. He was dealing with all those issues. And there's one sentence in his questioning letter that he wrote home to his pastor which poses the problem of suffering I think better and more succinctly than I've ever heard it put before because it shows a lot of depth in the question. And maybe because it's a real question. It's not one of those anti-God philosophers just trying to justify unbelief and saying, look at all the suffering out there. This guy was in the midst of it. He had a real question and the question was very specific on a very specific point of theology. He says to his pastor, he asks, he says, how can there be fairness in one man being maimed for life, suffering agonies, another killed instantaneously, while I get out of it safe? Does God really love us individually, or does he love his purpose more? That is an incredibly depthy question. Does God love us individually or his purpose more? He's not questioning God. He's not questioning God's existence. He's, he's taking two things that are true, that God loves us and God loves his own purpose. He has a purpose for what happens. And he's questioning because of the situation he's in whether God loves his own purpose more than he loves people. That's a really important question. So well framed. If you want a full answer to that question, you might want to pick up John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God, because I think he deals with that really well. But the short answer is that God loves his purpose and us individually. Not more or less, but in perfect harmony because he has infinite wisdom. That's really the key. God does love his purpose and God loves himself. In fact, God's love for himself because God is the, the highest good that there is should be greater than his love for us. But it's not against us that God loves his own purpose. He loves his purpose and he loves us individually just as much. It's just he knows in his infinite wisdom how to harmonize those things. Because we're all locked in time, and now is more real to us than the future, to our senses, we have to trust that. We have to trust God's promises. But he comprehends everything at one moment in infinite wisdom, so he doesn't, he's not bound like we are. Well, I'm suffering now. Because he can see a zillion years of eternal glory ahead for you, if you're his child. And, and that has a context to the suffering. And if the suffering adds to the quality of your being when you're there, he's willing to do that. In many ways, that's what Romans chapter 8 is all about. Soon we'll come to Romans 8.28, but it pays off to read it right now. 
We know that God causes, there's his purpose, all things, what? To work together for good. There's God's purpose. He loves his purpose. God causes all things to work together for good. And here's the second part. To those who love God. That's the individual that God loves. God causes all things to work together in his purpose to those, for those, on behalf of those who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. So there's not a contrast or a, a disagreement between God's purpose and his love for us individually. He harmonizes them because he's laboring for us. And that verse is immediately followed by an explanation of divine election, predestination, which we'll be getting to, and the unconquerable, unshakable, unchanging nature of his love. Verses 31 through 39 there. And verse 35 asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes into this long explanation, nothing! God's purpose is never contrary to his love for us individually. They work together. So nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not machine guns, or mines, or mortars, or gas, or bombs, or anything like that. But when that's all around you, you have to remember the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's a matter of time, temporal versus eternal, and it's a matter of substance. The worst afflictions here will seem light in comparison with the weight of glory there. Eternity won't even things out. It will swallow up all earthly sorrows and make them as nothing. And faith apprehends this and holds on to that. I was thinking of another war letter when I was contemplating all this. Most of, those of you that know me know that I'm a big Chamberlain fan. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who won the Medal of Honor at Gettysburg with this fantastic bayonet charge he did, is one of those great Americans that every schoolboy should know about, especially every Christian boy. I don't know if there's a book for children about him. There should be. Maybe I should write one. <laughs> but a man of remarkable moral character and strength and intellect and courage and faith. About a year after Gettysburg, he was leading a charge of, uh, as a colonel of an entire Union brigade outside of Petersburg, and his color bearer, the guy that was carrying the flag, was killed right near him. He was out in front. He was always in front, leading from the front. So he picked up the flag himself. So he had the flag in one hand, and he had a sword in the other hand, and he's leading his men forward. And they're a little bit behind him because the shots are coming pretty heavy. So he turns to the side like this to rally them forward, to call them forward. And a bullet, what they call a mini ball, it's a very destructive piece of shot, passed through him. It, it hit him in the hip and it severed arteries. It nicked his bladder. It fractured his pelvic bones and then it tore out the other side of him. And in those days, that is a majorly serious injury. I'm sure it is today too, but... Before surgery, modern surgery, internal organs, they didn't understand much at all about internal organs in those days. And he just stood there with the flag, calling to his men and pushing him forward verbally until his blood, he lost so much blood, he just finally collapsed on the ground. And these two lieutenants came and they carried him back to the rear. And he was told that his wound was mortal, because when they saw all that, and knowing that it, internal damage like that and all the blood loss, they just said, you're not going to make it. But his brother wouldn't take that... Um, advice so he ran and found this young happening young surgeon guy who knew a little bit more and was willing to try some newer things and worked on him all night long tried to sew things together that they'd never really done before in fact the operation they did on him became a 
medical history kind of issue thing. It was so unusual. But they told him he probably wasn't going to live and not to expect to live beyond a day or two. So believing he was dying, he wrote this letter to his wife. My darling wife, I am lying mortally wounded, the doctors think, but my mind and heart are at peace. Jesus Christ is my all-sufficient Savior. I go to him. God bless and keep and comfort you, precious one. You have been a precious wife to me. To know and love you makes life and death beautiful. Cherish the darlings and give my love to all the dear ones. Do not grieve too much for me. We shall all soon meet. Live for the children. Give my dearest love to Father, Mother, and Sally and John. Oh, how happy to feel yourself forgiven. God bless you evermore, precious, precious one, ever yours, Lawrence. He has peace because he really believes and he knows Christ. He has eternity in view and he knows how temporary his agony is and how temporary her agony will be even if she has to live a long life mourning him. Amazingly, uh, that surgery the guy did saved his life. He lived to be in his 80s but always with excruciating pain. He went back to the battlefield months later as a, as a general, promoted to a general, was wounded several more times, always in great pain, became a college president, became the governor of Maine four times, always with great pain. All the time, though, he viewed his life as ordered by God's providence. In fact, they wrote a very thick biography of him called In the Hands of Providence because that was his favorite understanding of life. And he was content with that because his faith made him able to rest in Christ's love. The weight of glory sustained him during temporal affliction. Now let's go back to our text. Beginning at verse 19, Paul gives us this incredible portrait of creation. Suffering, he says, is built into the way things are. And it's so well said. Let me just read from 19 to 23 and then we can go back and talk about it. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. There's a beautiful symmetry to these verses. It, it begins and ends with longing and waiting. Even longing and waiting for the same thing. Wholeness and, and freedom and glory. But it begins with creation itself longing and waiting. And it concludes with us longing and waiting. Now, this part of the text is absolutely critical to developing a Christian understanding of reality, of the world. Verse 19 Again, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is given kind of a personality here. This is a, a figure of speech. No, the creation is not a, a being. But it's given emotions that help tie in our destiny with creation. He wants us to think in terms of the creation because we are part of it. 
because we share something very special with creation. Creation is anxiously longing, it's pictured that way, and eagerly waiting for something. What's it waiting for? It's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. What does creation care about that? What is that? That's the day that sinners are made perfect in Christ when our sonship will be obvious to all when we share the glory of Christ as adopted children. In other words, the great day when Jesus comes and restores all things and there's a new world. It's a day wonderfully described in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, which says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And He'll do that. He'll subject all things to Him, renew it, transform it, fix it, and us too. Also, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory, he says. So on the day when we are revealed with Christ in glory, something will happen that creation itself is longing for. Well, if you've ever read Genesis chapter 3, you know creation has been cursed. What was once all beauty and harmony and peace has been unbalanced with death and disaster, and catastrophes, and privation, and danger, and decay, and pollution, and on and on. Nature is harsh, and it's unforgiving, whereas once it was a paradise. You know, before the fall of man, to be lost in the woods would be a pleasure. There'd be abundant food, the temperatures would be perfectly accommodating to you, the animals would be friendly, the dinosaurs would lick your face, I mean, it would be a nice place. I don't know if that would be nice. Well, you, could, you could climb up on a brontosaurus neck and look around. Whatever. But the reason for the curse was man's sin. Genesis 3.17 Cursed is the ground because of you, God says to Adam. Just as God created the world with all of its infinite diversity and magnificence, then he, at that moment, radically altered the creation when man fell into sin and God introduced death and decay and hostility into nature. Everything changed. Sin ruins things. That is the very real message that we are to live with every day. We have to weed the garden or repaint the garage or go see the doctor. Things decline. Build something and just leave it. Guess what? It won't be the same a few years from now as when you first build it, unless you maintain it. You have to keep maintaining it. Or it'll rot and decay and decline and collapse. Why? Why does it have to do that? Why can't my fence just stay up? It's because the earth is cursed. Why can't my hair stay brown? The earth is cursed. <laughs> Look at the terms used in Romans 8. Verse 20, futility. Verse 21, slavery to corruption. It's a world in decline. Scientists even tell you, if you want to look at the big picture, that every time energy is used, a little bit is lost. And there's no new energy being created. Energy only changes, transfers, right? It does, there isn't new energy coming. So it just changes forms. But every time it changes forms from one thing to another, 
light to photosynthesis in a plant, for example, becoming energy or food for the plant, a little bit is lost. And eventually, however many zillions of years it takes, but eventually, every, all energy will be gone in the universe. It won't be gone. It's just spinning down, slowly spinning down. That's the curse. Your universe wasn't designed that way. That was a result of the curse. It's just spinning down. Woody Allen, the great filmmaker and pervert, <laughs> said his great grief is that he knows his films won't survive because someday the universe will come to an end. <laughs> Talk about arrogant artists. But I mean, it's true, though. Nothing will survive if things just go on as they are. Nothing. The sun, the sun is actually burning up its fuel, you know. It's only got so much. Now, the reason this is so important intellectually and philosophically as a matter of worldview is just this. The secularist believes that the way things are is the way they've always been. And he sees nature as normal. So he interprets all of nature's corruptions and horrors as normal and acceptable. He has to, by the way he thinks. The Christian sees the natural world as abnormal, not the way it was originally designed. We see people and creation as profoundly in need of redemption and renewal and salvation. The secular person doesn't see that. The secular unbeliever thinks he's a realist, when actually he is accommodating himself to a cursed world. That's why so many secularists have a hard time understanding moral accountability. They, they just don't get it. Because what is, is. They don't have room in their thinking for deviations. That's why they're so willing to move the bar of what's acceptable. You know, 50 years ago, there's a lot of things that weren't acceptable that people do now all the time. It changes all the time because as we become a secular culture, and you say, well, this is what people do, and you say, well, that's unacceptable. You say, well, why is it unacceptable? Well, we would say it's a violation of the standard. They would say, what standard? What is, is what is. Abortion is okay because animals eat their own young. I mean, that's just nature. Sexual perversions are okay because that's what people do. Marriage should be a flexible institution because most people are not monogamous for life. So why should they be? But understanding that there has been a fall of man into sin and rebellion and knowing that the physical universe was cursed by God, that changes everything. We know there is a good that we have fallen from, so there's something to look at and strive for. We know why we mourn and why we grieve sin and suffering and death because those things are grievous. They're abnormal. They don't fit. It wasn't meant to be this way. And we know that human suffering is just a wake-up, a divine reminder that the world is not right, that we are not right, that we need a Redeemer and a Savior. That's the purpose for this cursed thing. God did that. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. Creation didn't decide to be futile, to spin down, to fall apart, but because of Him who subjected it. God did that. We live in a cursed world and God is the one who cursed it. So knowing this should profoundly influence how we view life and the world around us. This is the reason that in matters of great import, Christians 
also should not go to the world for advice because the world sees it totally differently. The world doesn't get it, and they won't. But you know, a day of glory does wait for us. A day of salvation and restoration and the cursed ground will be transformed and the curse will be lifted and reversed and everything will be free of decline and decay and death and the fence will just stay there and the sun can hit it all at once and it'll just be a nice fence and what greater reality than verse 21 that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Wow, what a beautiful way to say it. Freedom. What greater freedom could we enjoy than freedom from sin and its results? The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation waits for that. In verse 22, Paul alludes to a metaphor that Jesus liked to use in describing the convulsive, destructive condition of the world just preceding his return in glory. That is the idea of the pains of childbirth. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Why use that as a metaphor? Because it really hurts. And something wonderful is following. That's why. It's such, a great, it's such a great metaphor. Few pains are as extreme as those of childbirth. I've never seen my wife in such pain as the day you were born. <laughs> and you, and you. And that's with medication. She chickened out real fast. Get the drugs! <laughs> but you know, the pain is going somewhere by design that is wonderful and joyous. And in that case, it's a, it's a little baby. So too, the travails of creation are all in anticipation of a new world that God will make out of the old world. And we, like creation, groan. Verse 23, not only this, but we are also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Christians groan in a way that the world doesn't groan because we've, all, we've already been touched with eternal glory when we were born again, the first fruits of the Spirit. We've already got a glimpse because our hearts have been redeemed and we've been made alive to God and we go, wow! I can't wait till my body catches up to all of that and, and creation catches up to all of that and all that's in my heart that God has put there. The first fruit of the Spirit is a kind of experiential, spiritual down payment on what is to come. The Spirit lets us feel. He lets us feel the glory of holiness and the frustration of sin in our members that the world doesn't feel so that we long to be transformed and have sin eradicated once and for all. We just can't wait. We want our body to catch up to the desire of our hearts, which is a work that was wrought by the Spirit in us. So the Spirit's presence, in a sense, gives us a kind of holy discontentment with the world and with ourselves. So we groan, we wait for our adoption to be completed so we can love God and please God and enjoy God forever in perfection. And just as the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, as verse 16 says, so too we wait not in terror but in hope. 
And hope is one of those three great Christian virtues, right? What are the three Christian virtues? Faith, hope, and love. And love is the greatest because love lasts forever. Hope in the New Testament, by the way, is not used the way we use the word. I hope I get an A on that test. I hope I don't get fired from my job. I hope I get an aircraft carrier for Christmas. Those kind of things. Hope in the New Testament is always a sure thing. A trust in God to provide what he has promised is concerning the future. It's an absolute surety. It's an anchor. In fact, the, word, the book of Hebrews uses the word hope as an anchor. It says that it's an anchor. We need hope because that completion of our salvation is as yet unseen. We don't see it. Verse 24. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what is one also hope for what he sees? Hey, if the aircraft carrier is under the Christmas tree, you don't have to hope anymore. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it, he says. Obviously, once you have it, you don't need to hope anymore. That's why love is greater than faith and hope. Love never ends. Faith will one day be sight. And hope will one day be realized. But love will endure forever because we'll love God and he'll love us and we'll love each other forever. The blessed effect of hope then is in perseverance. We can wait. We groan, but we can wait because we have an assurance that is given to us by a perfect and merciful God. He, our God and Father, whose power never fails, promises us this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for the wonder of our adoption. And Lord, we do groan sometimes, waiting. We're frustrated with our bodies that are failing, with the world that's decaying, with the way the world is, the decline of our culture, our own wickedness that keeps nipping at our heels, trying to reassert itself. And we long for the day when all that will be over with. But you promise that it will be. And we ask for the faith to let that truth sink in so that we live today confidently in the hope of tomorrow and see suffering not from our perspective here only, but from your perspective. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.